Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 11 through 44. As you turn there, let's pray together. Ask for God's blessing on our time. Our Father, we, we need your Holy Spirit. We, we need your Holy Spirit if we are to understand, if we are to believe, if we are to be changed, if we are to obey. We need your Holy Spirit to work in us. And so we pray, Father, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit right now, that you would pour out your Spirit on me, that I would speak the words that need to be spoken, that you would pour out your Spirit on those who hear, that they would be able to hear with their ears and uh, believe and be changed. Father, pour out your Spirit on us, uh, that your glory would be made known in our midst and through us to the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our sermon text for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, beginning with verse 11. This is God's word. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to him, said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, But rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. 
When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Do you ever feel like I'm saying the same things week after week? I do, <laughs> uh, because in part I am. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm talking about Jesus every week. But also recently, in the past year, I've been preaching out of the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, different books in the Bible have different themes. And uh, as you work through a book, you keep hitting on the, those themes again and again. You keep coming back to them. I think God did it that way because we need to hear things more than once. <laughs> well, Matthew is about... Jesus' messiahship, his kingship, his authority, his rule. We see in Matthew, uh, God's kingdom is counterintuitive to our way of thinking. Uh, Jesus exercises his authority in service. Uh, Jesus exercises his rule in weakness. He is first because he makes himself last. And this theme is really throughout all of Scripture, that God's power is made perfect in weakness, that victory comes through suffering. God doesn't promise that we will avoid the valley of the shadow of death, but he promises to be with us in the midst of that valley, to see us through it. Well, we are descending into Jesus' valley this morning. So these themes of suffering, of course, are only emphasized. And yet we're still in the Gospel of Matthew, and so Jesus' kingship is also emphasized in these verses. What we see in this section is really the, the ironic or the counterintuitive nature of Jesus' kingship. It runs exactly contrary to what everyone expected. There are actually a, a number of ironies in our passage this morning. We're going to talk about just a few of them. We're going to talk about the irony of the release, the irony of the blood, the irony of the mockers, and then finally the irony of the Christian life. Uh, you can see that outline in your bulletin. I should maybe define the word irony. It's kind of a hard word to pin down, the word irony. I'm always afraid, actually, of using it because I'm afraid I'm going to use it wrong. But uh, So I just look in the dictionary, right? What the dictionary says, I take that to be true that most of the time. Uh, uh, Irony means a disconnect between what we expect and what actually is. When something, when there's this disconnect, it's, it's seen as ironic. It's when the outcome of an event is the opposite of what we expect. So irony plays with appearances, plays with expectations, it plays with outcomes. Uh, 
So we're going to look at first the irony of the release. Jesus is arrested. He's convicted by the Jewish court. He's handed over to Pontius Pilate. And uh, what's the accusation? The accusation is that Jesus claims to be the king of the Jews. Uh, that he claims to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Jewish king. And this accusation has weight with Pilate because it means that Jesus is claiming to be a rival civil authority. So Pilate asks in verse 11, he says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, there's definitely a longer conversation that goes on here. Matthew doesn't tell us about it. It's recorded uh, for us in the Gospel of John, actually. But Pilate eventually comes to the conclusion that Jesus is not really a threat. Yet we're told in verse 15 that Pilate, uh, the governor, had this custom of releasing a prisoner for Passover. It's kind of a goodwill gesture to the people on one of their feast days. And uh, there are at least two people in Pilate's custody, probably more, but at least two. Barabbas, here, who is simply called a notorious prisoner. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that he's in prison for revolt and uh, revolting against Rome and for murder. Okay, so Barabbas, uh, a revolutionary, as it were. And uh, Pilate asks in verse 17, <clears throat> when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now, Pilate asks this, we're told, or, or Pilate knows, he says, verse 18, he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up. So Pilate knows that this is just out of envy that they're handing Jesus over. Um, Pilate likely thought, well, if the religious leaders are envious of him, they're probably envious of his popularity, his favor with the people, which means that the crowds would ask for Jesus. Barabbas is kind of an unseemly character. Jesus is popular with the crowds. Pilate even says, uh, Jesus, who is called Christ, right? So anyone called Christ by the Jews must have a significant following. And Pilate points that out for the people. He, he's your Christ. He's your Messiah. So not only does Pilate, on the one hand, come to the conclusion Jesus is not a threat, uh, not only does he realize that Jesus is simply handed over because of envy, but it even seems that his wife had had a dream, according to verse 19, uh, she sends a, a note to him saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And dreams, of course, were taken very seriously in the ancient world, in ancient Rome. And so Pilate, Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He, he knows the religious leaders are just jealous of his popularity. Uh, Pilate's wife has some kind of a dream, calls Jesus a righteous man, warns Pilate to have nothing to do with him. And so Pilate is actually seeking to get Jesus off. Which one do you want? Do you want your Christ or do you want this insurrectionist? And they, we see in verse 20 that the chief priests and the elders persuade the crowd to ask for Barnabas, destroy Jesus. And so then in verse 21, they say, when he asks, which one do you want me to release for you? They say, Barabbas. I think Pilate is actually surprised by this. He's taken aback. And uh, so uh, verse 22 he says to them, well, then, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? Again, he emphasizes that Jesus is the Christ. And they say, let him be crucified. And, and Pilate, uncharacteristically for this man, comes to Jesus' defense in verse 23. Do you notice that? He says, why? What evil has he done? Pilate has come to the conclusion Jesus is innocent. 
And he's actually saying to the people, why should I put him to death? He's innocent. What evil has he done? Of course, they cry out all the more, let him be crucified. And uh, Pilate eventually, verse 26, he releases Barabbas. He delivers Jesus to be crucified. The rebel is set free and the Messiah is condemned to death. That, there's the example of dramatic irony. Um, the audience or the reader, us, we know a lot more about the circumstances than the characters in the story, don't we? Uh, Pilate releases the rebel and he condemns the Messiah to death. Pilate's plan was actually likely to crucify the rebel and set the Messiah free, but he was persuaded otherwise by the crowd. Jesus, we know, is soon to be uh, crucified between two robbers. Uh, the, the word translated robbers in the ESV is translated in other Bibles, bandits and rebels and revolutionaries. Again, these were not nice guys. It wasn't petty thief. That's not uh, petty uh, theft. That's not why they were on the cross. They were revolutionaries. They were rebels. It's likely, at least, that these men were Barabbas' cohorts in crime, that they were all arrested at the same time for their rebellion. Which, if that's the case, it highlights the fact that the cross in the middle was really meant for Barabbas, not for Jesus. The Messiah took the place of the rebel. Dramatic irony is often when people in the story do things, and to them it means one thing or even nothing at all. But we know that it means something much bigger. It means something completely different, or it means something much bigger than the people in the story could ever imagine. For Pilate, putting Jesus to death, releasing Barabbas, it, it really doesn't mean anything in the long run. Okay, he puts to death an innocent man. Not a big deal for Pilate. For the crowd stirred up by the religious leaders, they think they're putting to death a blasphemer. He claimed to be the, the son of God. He's a blasphemer, so that's why they want him put to death. But of course, what's really happening is that the Messiah is taking the place of rebels. Barabbas is guilty of insurrection and murder. Jesus is a righteous man. Barabbas goes free. Jesus is crucified. It's a picture in miniature of what Jesus is doing for all of us. Jesus came to take the place of rebels that we might go free. We are guilty. Jesus is the righteous man. But the Father pours out his wrath, pours out his anger for sin on the Son, and he sets us free. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The righteous for the unrighteous. That's what's going on here. Jesus for Barabbas. Jesus for us. That seemingly insignificant moment of releasing Barabbas and crucifying Jesus is a picture of the redemption of humankind from sin. Well, what does that mean for us? I mean, we can notice what's going on, but so what? Well, Jesus took our place. If we trust in Christ, uh, we're no longer liable to God's wrath. <clears throat> Jesus is declared guilty that we might go free. He's delivered up to judgment that we might never taste God's anger. The righteous man dies in the place of the rebels, the innocent in place of the insurrectionists, God's king in the place of those who rejected God as king. What that means is all of those sins that weigh us down, all the, the guilt which we can't get out of our mind and our hearts, all of the condemning thoughts that we have, before the Father, those are gone. The Father doesn't hold us accountable for our sin. He doesn't judge or condemn us for our sin in Christ, but He loves us and He forgives us and He receives us as if we were His own dear Son. 
Because actually this, this substitution that happened works both ways. Just as Jesus took our place in the cross, he gives us his place so that we stand before the Father as if we were his own son, beloved and cherished and accepted and adored. That, that's the first irony, right? The righteous man dies in the place of the rebel because the righteous man came to die in the place of rebels. Second irony is this. It's the irony of the blood. Pilate is uh, so ready to let Jesus go. He knows he's innocent. He knows the religious leaders are just jealous. And uh, he hears his wife's dream, the declaration that Jesus is that righteous man. And Pilate defends Jesus. Why? What, what evil has he done? The crowds persist. Crucify him. So in verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Pilate doesn't want to accept responsibility for Jesus' death. Now, the people, however, are all too eager. Verse 25, the, the, the crowd answers, His blood be on us and on our children. What they're saying is staggering. Uh, they're saying, we, we accept the responsibility for this man's death. That's fine. Some think that Pilate, what Pilate is doing here is actually echoing a command in, in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21. If an unsolved murder happens near your city, the elders of that city uh, must perform a certain ceremony, which involves them breaking the neck of a heifer and washing their hands and declaring, our hands did not shed this blood nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. Well, here Pilate is saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, and the people are saying, his blood be on us. The ceremony of washing was a way of dealing with the guilt of innocent blood. The washing of hands was a, a sign, a symbol, right? Uh, that I'm not guilty of this innocent person's death. That's what Pilate is saying. I'm not guilty of Jesus' blood. But the crowd, the people declare something different. His blood be on us and on our children. Why would you ever say such a thing? Why accept the guilt of someone's death, someone's murder, really, here? Well, the religious leaders have convinced them that Jesus is guilty, that Jesus is a blasphemer, so in some ways, they, they don't think there's any guilt here. Uh, they think this is just a, a legitimate, just punishment. And so, uh, you know, their words are really just kind of a way to encourage Pilate. Uh, don't worry about the consequences, Pilate, right? Just crucify him. If there are any consequences, let those consequences be on our heads. Once again, we have what I, I think is dramatic irony, right? Because they have no idea what they're saying. His blood be on us and on our children. Yes, that's exactly what we need, isn't it? We need to be covered with the blood of Jesus. They mean it one way. They certainly have no idea what they're saying, but there's a much deeper meaning in those words, isn't there? Revelation 7.14 talks about Christians washing their robes and making them white in the blood of the Lamb. 1 Peter 1.2 talks about those who are sprinkled with Jesus' blood. Uh, 1 John 1.7 that says that Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. And in the Old Testament, we, we, we read, we find that rebellion against God merits punishment. The punishment for sin is death. Uh, but we also find that it's possible 
for a substitute to die in the place of the guilty. This is taught in the Old Testament by, by a lamb or an ox or a bull being slaughtered in the place of the people. And the symbol of that substitute sacrifice in the Old Testament is, is, that, is the blood of the animal. And the blood of that animal is often literally uh, sprinkled on the people or on the one who sinned. And the symbolic import is that the death of the substitute covers the sin of the people. And so we have Jesus who takes the place of Barabbas, the Messiah substituted in the place of the rebel. And we need Jesus' blood to be on us and on our children. We need Jesus' blood, his death, to cover our sins. And this is the promise of God, right? That if we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we don't hide our sin, don't deny our sin, but confess our sin, Jesus' blood cleanses us. That's what we read this morning. That's why we confess our sin week after week. There's this real sense, according to 1 John, that every time we confess our sin, we are cleansed afresh. And our relationship to our Father is renewed. Again, what do you need to confess this morning? How, how have you sinned this past week? How have you rebelled against God? Uh, how have you rejected God as king and tried to live life your own way without him? How has your self-will shown itself? How have you been angry or greedy or lied to get your way? In what subtle way does your heart's rebellion show itself? And sometimes we think uh, when we react poorly in life, something bad or something difficult or something surprising happens and we react in a certain way and we think, oh, that's not me. I I'm not normally like that. I'm really a much better person than all that. I, I was really just having a bad day. I was caught off guard. But when we're caught off guard and when life gets difficult, that is exactly when your real self comes out. Um, you know, once upon a time, uh, women wore slips under their dresses uh, I don't know if anybody wears slips anymore, but they used to. And when they did, you used to hear very quietly uh, one woman might say to another, your, your slip is showing, right? Uh, you know, th that what, what was always there had become visible, and it wasn't supposed to be visible, right? Uh, that, that's what happens when you get angry or when you lie to cover up an embarrassing mistake or when you speak rudely to someone or when you get defensive when life happens, suddenly your heart is showing. But rather than try to cover it up ourselves, we must expose it to the light that Jesus might cover it with his blood. That's what it means to walk in the light. It doesn't mean to walk perfectly, but it means to walk honestly, willing to expose our sin, expose our moral failure, knowing that Christ will cover it and cleanse us with his blood. That's the irony of the blood. They said his blood be on us and on our children, but they had no idea what they meant. Because really, that's exactly what they needed. His blood on us and on our children. So we have the irony of the release, the irony of the blood, and the irony of the mockers. Um, this is the most in-your-face irony in the passage. It's, it's found in their mocking. The mocking starts right away with the soldiers. Uh, Jesus has just been scourged. He's bloody and, and beaten. The soldiers get a whole battalion before Jesus, maybe 600 men, and they put a scarlet robe on Jesus to signify his supposed royalty. Uh, they twist a crown of thorns, right, a, a kingly emblem upon his head. They put a reed in his hand, a royal scepter. 
And they kneel before him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him and they strike him and they mock him. He's no king, they think. Just look at him. Covered in blood and spit. Hail, King of the Jews, they say. And as they take Jesus out to be crucified, apparently he's so weakened from the scourging, he he can't even carry his own cross. And so they force Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. And an interesting uh, character who we can't talk about now, but uh, they, they, they take Simon, they make him carry the cross. And Jesus eventually gets to Golgotha, the aptly named place of the skull, and they offer him wine, uh, which he doesn't take. And some think that Jesus doesn't want to dull his senses on the cross. He wants to be all with it in that moment. That's possible. It's also possible that the wine is actually another aspect of their mocking his pain. Uh, The psalmist in Psalm 69 says, I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Right? It's, it's a way of mocking someone. Oh, you're thirsty? Try this undrinkable thing. Then they crucify Jesus with just a word in verse 35. They divide his garments among them in fulfillment of Psalm 22. The charge over Jesus' head reads, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That's the charge against Jesus. He's the King of the Jews. But of course, never was a truer word said. Here is Jesus, the King of the Jews, the King of Israel. Here he is. On the cross. Those who pass by mock him. They, they wag their heads, heads, it says, right? They shake their heads derisively, dismissively. Their whole body demeans him, not just their words, but even their, their, their physical stance toward Jesus is demeaning. And listen to their mocking taunts. They say things like, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. You think you're so great, Jesus, right? You think you can destroy the temple and rebuild it? You think your hot stuff will save yourself? They don't see that the temple is being destroyed before their very eyes. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Hear an echo of Satan's temptation in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, do something amazing. Show it to the world. But here he is doing something amazing because he is the Son of God. He's dying for sinners. But they can't see that. He saved others. He cannot save himself. It's true. Because if he saved himself, he wouldn't be saving others. If he's going to save people, he must not save himself. He saves others by not saving himself. He is the king of Israel, they say. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Kings don't let themselves die on crosses. Right? Kings conquer. Come down off the cross. That would be spectacular. That would be amazing. That would be something worth believing in. A crucified Messiah? That's just silly. He trusts in God, they say. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. They knew of Jesus' devotion. They knew his claim to be the Son of God. If, it, if it's real, where's your God now, Jesus? Why won't your God save you now? Because they don't know that this is the Father's plan. And God will deliver him, but not before he bears the sin of many. And even the rebels who are crucified with him mock in the same way, we're told. Why do they all mock? 
How do they mock? Where there's this disconnect between what Jesus said, or really how they understood what Jesus said, and what is happening before their eyes. One who has the power to rebuild the temple in three days should have the power to save himself. One who is the Son of God should be so great that he can step down from the cross. One who can save others should be able to save himself. One who is the King of Israel shouldn't be crucified on a Roman cross. That's not what we want our kings to do. We want them to conquer, not be conquered. One who claims a unique intimacy with God shouldn't suffer like common criminals. The real Messiah would be kicking butt and taking names. The Messiah didn't come to suffer, but to conquer. Everybody knows that. I mean, in the Old Testament, there was this theme of the righteous sufferer. That's true. But the Messiah was going to come and put an end to all that through conquering. The Messiah was the solution to the problems of the righteous sufferer. He's the end of righteous suffering, some thought. A suffering Messiah then makes no sense. So they mock Jesus because of this disconnect between his claim and between his actions. And of course, every one of their statements is both bitter and beautiful. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but this is exactly what the Messiah came to do. He came to die on the cross as the true temple so the Father might raise him up on the third day. He came to go to the cross, not to avoid it. He came to save others and not himself. He is the king right here, right now, doing his kingly work of defeating the enemies of his people, the enemies of sin and guilt and Satan and death and hell. We believe in him because he did not get down off the cross. This is the supreme example of Jesus' kingly work, defending his people, protecting his people, conquering his enemies by his death. Now, people have continued to mock uh, Jesus for the act of the crucifixion. Um, there's actually some ancient graffiti uh, is found in the 2nd or 3rd century uh, depicting a figure on a cross with a donkey's head. Uh, you can Google it, uh, actually. Uh, the second figure is standing beside the cross, apparently worshiping this donkey on the cross. And the inscription reads, uh, Alexander worships his God. Ancient graffiti mocking the Christian God. People still mock this today, right? I mean, people think, you might think that, well, we're too politically correct to, to mock Jesus in this way. But I got a recent email uh, from the Illini Secular Student Alliance, and this is what it said. Uh, His noodliness died for your spaghetti. Right? They're, they're poking fun at Jesus, right? They're, they're poking fun at the idea of the cross. It's just silly to them. How silly that one person would die for another. Well, Paul says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. One of our struggles in the church is to not boast in the world, 
to not take on the, the, the world's values, to not boast in strength and wisdom and academic degrees, to not boast in beauty and popularity and money, and to recognize that all of these things, all of these are, are the powers of this world and all of these things fail. None of these things are sovereign over our days. They don't direct the course of my life. They can't save us. They can't justify my existence. They can't restore my relationship to my Father in heaven. For these things, that the powers of the world are ultimately worthless. And yet the world looks at the cross and mocks. They mock, and yet we are called to boast, to boast in the cross of Christ. Which brings us to uh, the, the irony of the Christian life. The irony of the Christian life is that rather than boasting in the things that make us look good, we are to boast in the very things that make us look bad. In the world of appearance and reputation and strength and beauty, where everything is about looking good, it, we are to boast about something else. If it's not ironic, at least it's unexpected to boast, even to be open about what makes you look bad. We, we spend all of our time trying to hide those things, not be open about them, not boast in them. But as Christians, we're actually to boast in those kinds of things in at least two ways. We're to boast in the cross. That's what we've already said. To, to be a Christian is to boast not in the powers of the world, uh, not in anything you can attain in human strength. Uh, that's not worth boasting in, right? We're, we're not to boast in things that are uh, competitive, right, that distinguish you from one person or another. Maybe you do have money. Maybe you do have looks. Maybe you do have smarts or strength or whatever it is. If you have those things, great. They're gifts from God. Right? Give thanks for them, use them, enjoy them. Right? They're gifts, they're good gifts, but they will also pass away. Uh, they're impermanent, therefore they're ultimately impotent. Don't boast in such things. Right? Boast in the cross, where Jesus bore sin once for all, where Jesus reconciles you to the Father, where he gave his life that you might have life, where he, the innocent one, died in the place of rebels, where he shed his blood to cover your sin, where he did his work uh, not to make you better than the next person in this life, but to redeem you from this fallen world, to make you citizens of a better world to come. That is not about competition or about getting ahead, but it's about the love of your Father in heaven. Don't boast in the powers of this world. The, the good gifts from God they may be, but boast in the cross of Christ and in the power of his resurrection. Of course, if we're going to boast in the cross, we also have to boast in our own weakness. We must accept and acknowledge human weakness, human limitations, even human sin. We must be ready to stand and say, yes, I am weak. Yes, I am sinful. Yes, I am messed up. But my God is so good and his power is made perfect in my weakness. I want to tell of my weakness so that his power might be seen in me as well. I'll probably keep saying until the end of the book of Matthew that uh, we need our understanding of reality to be redefined. We need to evaluate greatness in terms of humility. We keep looking for conquering kings, for strength and power and beauty and intellect to come in and save the day and make everything right. But Jesus comes in weakness, a, a horrible spectacle in the folly of the cross. Boast in the cross. 
Boast in your weakness that God's power to save and transform might be put on display for the world to see. Where are you weak? Where have you failed recently? Where have you sinned recently? Be honest about that. Boast in your weakness, confess your sin, and you will begin to see God's power at work in your life more and more. Let's pray. Our Father, we are scared to be honest. Uh, we're, scared to, we're scared to even show our weakness, much less boast in it. We're scared to let people know that we're sinful and broken and fallen. And yet you promise that as we do that, your power, your power will be made known. The power of Jesus, the power of the resurrection will be seen in us and through us. And we pray, Father, that, uh, that you would work, that you would bring us to a place where we first understand what it means to boast in weakness, and two, that we, that we feel safe enough in your love that we can do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.